Take Command is a new book released by Dale Carnegie. The book features leadership stories from our podcast guests, as well as young up-and-coming professionals. Published by Simon & Schuster, Take Command is co-authored by Joe Hart and Michael Crum. Visit TakeCommand.com for more details and to buy the book. Now to our latest episode. Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Our guest today is a business owner, motivational speaker, ambassador, and fitness instructor. In 2015, she founded the Love Squad Community to empower women by facilitating educational conversations. As a certified health coach and Peloton instructor, she's dedicated to uplifting people and helping them in the pursuit of natural wellness. She's inspired audiences at major global companies such as Google, JP Morgan, Amazon, Salesforce, and many more. She's also been featured in Vogue in the New York Times and has appeared on various shows such as Good Morning America. We're excited to welcome the founder and CEO of Love Squad, Allie Love. Allie, welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm (laughs) thrilled to have you here. I mean, you are a really incredible person. I know you're a business owner. You're an arena host for the Brooklyn Nets. You're a top Peloton instructor. You've got this Love Squad organization that you've started. You're really into community. You're doing so many really, really incredible things. So looking forward to learning about you and Tell us about, you know, what are some of the things that led you from kind of where you started to where you are today? Yeah. So I would say the number one thing that led me is curiosity and hunger. Number one and number two. One, I will say I am thrilled to have this conversation. To be on this podcast is a big deal for me. And the reason for that is because growing up, I didn't know what were options in my life in a sense, right? My mom is one of 10 kids, lives in Miami, Florida. I'm half black, half white, very much like a black woman in Miami, learning Spanish, like living all the kind of flavors of our family in a sense. We're very much a family that's rooted in values and coming together and having a good time and working really hard. And then on top of that, I knew that probably around the age of like nine, 10, there was a hunger inside of me of wanting to move outside of Miami. Nothing wrong. I love Miami, but there was like a hunger that I wanted more. I fell in love at the age of 10 with dance, with movement on how to communicate a little differently. And I knew, you know, they would say the best dancers come out of New York City. So I had my heart set at the age of 10 to go to New York City and to become a dancer. And that's exactly what I did. I ended up going to a middle school that had a dance program, auditioning, getting in. From that middle school, I went to a high school. So that was Norland Middle School in Miami. And then one of the best schools in the world, New World School of the Arts, especially for high school dance or high school art, I auditioned. And the funny story is that I got on the wait list. I got a letter in the mail. I had auditioned for a couple of schools, all public schools. And I got a letter in the mail that I was waitless. And it kind of broke my heart in a sense. And I think that was the first moment at a very young age that I learned to make peace with the decisions. And I said, you know what? This isn't going to stop me. It's not a sign that I should give up dance. I'm going to continue to pursue dance and see what my second plan is. And then a week later, I was with a friend and her mom. 
And my dad called her mom and was like, can I speak to Allie? And I thought it was an emergency. And my dad was like, you got a phone call that said New World School of the Arts made a mistake. They sent you the wrong letter. You're actually in the school. <laughs> and so it was one of those things where I was like, oh, that was a quick lesson. You know, I'm happy it was quick. It hurt really deeply in a sense of like wanting something at a young age, thinking that I was capable and then not being an option for me, but learning that if I continue to stay faithful and work hard in a sense of like not letting go of that dream, I can pursue it. So went to New York School of the Arts, graduated. That brought me to New York City. I got a scholarship to go to the Alvin Ailey School uh, and got a bachelor's in fine arts at Fordham University and Lincoln Center. And it just ended up kind of this curiosity of what's next. If this is possible, what's next? If this is possible, what can happen next? Around the next corner in New York City, what could happen in such a very much altruistic way? Like what could be next for me? And it was that hunger of, I know that there is something more. I know that I deserve more. And I know that might sound a little arrogant, but at a young age, I knew my family deserved more. We had humble beginnings. My mother worked really hard to make sure that we could afford tights and I could afford dance class, but it wasn't easy, right? We didn't come from support or comfort. And so there was a hunger of like, I want to get to that point. I want to continue to strive and figure it out. So from the very beginning, this curiosity of, wow, what could happen next? Coupled with hunger of like, I know that I do deserve, I know my family does. I know my mom works really hard. There's more out there and we deserve a piece of that. And how hard can I work to get there? Those are the things that fuel me and continue to fuel me. You clearly worked exceptionally hard. It's just really incredible. I think about you getting that letter it sounded like you had accepted, actually, okay, so this isn't going to work. What's my next step? I mean, you were not going to let that deter you, which is really a great quality. But I also know you had an accident, I think, just maybe a year or so before that, that really was a significant concern. You overcame a lot, even to get to that point. Yeah, actually, it was at nine years old. So I got nine years old. I got hit by a car right before I fell in love with dance, before my mother put me into the summer community camp. I got hit by a car, broke my left femur, broke my teeth, scarred up my face. I was in the hospital for seven days. The doctor let my mother know that, you know, I probably never become an athlete, that I probably have arthritis at a young age. I had to be in traction for about five days just to keep the bone from healing incorrectly because only older people, adults break their hips, not kids. So it was like kind of an uncommon thing that they were dealing with. So we had to wait for the plate to be made and then shipped over and then the surgery. And during that time, I lost a lot of blood. I was really fragile. I was already a really small kid. I was the shortest in class. It was through kind of being in the hospital for those seven days that I witnessed and experienced what is now my current faith. Like I experienced like what I know God can do for me and this ability to make decisions on my own. And there were moments where it wasn't looking so good. And my mother had to let me know, you know, you got to continue to fight. Like if you want to live, you know, and we had those tough conversations throughout the week of being in the hospital. And I still remember it vividly because it was such a traumatic event. And once I graduated from the hospital and been able to go home, which was a big day for me, it was through that year of homeschooling and rehabilitation that I really forged that kind of when I talked about that hunger, and maybe it was just as easy to be honest, Joe, that desire came from the fact that I just wanted to go outside and play like everyone else. I wanted my friends to get out of school and me to finish homeschooling and for us to meet on the sidewalk and just play. And I didn't have that ability. And so knowing that other kids were out there living quote unquote, their best lives as a kid, I knew that that was available to me. I just had to work a little harder. And I think those were the natural things that came out of such a traumatic situation that really did fuel me. And I know it sounds all glamorous. It didn't happen like that because it doesn't happen like that. Hindsight is 2020. And so when I look back at the decisions that I made, at the way my parents raised me, at the questions my mother asked, it was in those moments that she was shaping me to become the woman that I am today. 
What I love is, like you said, it wasn't easy. I can imagine you, you know, watching the kids, having a good time. And this is a point where mindset is just so important. I mean, you could go in a couple different ways, but maybe because of your mom and because of you and your curiosity and your hunger, you have this positive mindset, which is like, I'm not going to let this stop me. I'm going to keep on going. And then I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to make this happen. Absolutely. I think that knowing that your life can be taken in a second. I was aware of that at a very young age, you know, after that accident, it didn't come later that I was aware of that. I knew in any second, your life could be over. So you might as well have the best time. You might as well make the best of it. And you might as well make the most of it. And so those were little terms that I could reconcile at that age of saying like, this may be my last time playing, but I'm going to have the best time playing, you know, like to make the most of it. Because one second I was getting ice cream at an ice cream truck. And the next second I'm in the hospital and kids are smart. Like not only are they intuitive, I mean, kids are extremely aware. And so I was able to gather that much information and grapple with the fact that this could be over soon. I've been there before. Yeah, that must have been very powerful, especially as a child where you think you're invincible and then you have that experience. I mean, for you, ironically, that just kind of pierced that idea of invincibility. And it basically was like, all right, I got to make things happen. You decided to go to New York. And we know that sometimes people look at successful people, they look at you and they'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, you're the in arena host for the Nets and you're a Peloton instructor, you've got all these different things going. Was it a linear success line for you? Were there ups and downs? I mean, what was it like to go from, to you get to New York? What was that like once you got there? What was that journey like? I'll quote another author. It was like Sheryl Sandberg says, like it was a jungle gym, but I never, and I don't to this day, walk with this notion of things are going to come easy. Like one day I'm just going to win the lottery or one day I'm just going to walk around the corner and meet the right person. My life will change forever. And while those things do naturally progressively happen and can happen, it doesn't happen like that, right? Or very rarely does it happen like that. When I moved to New York, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I started off, you know, the first question I told you, I didn't know what were options in life, right? I didn't know what you could pursue. I knew I wanted to dance, but when they asked like, what do you want your minor to be in university? I don't know, what are my options here? I didn't have a breadth of knowledge. I wasn't aware, my family, we didn't grow up with that access to information of like, this is who you could be. This is what you can be. You know, the basics, lawyer, doctor, my new artist was available because I fell in love with dance and I started seeing dancers, but I didn't know how you can create a career, right? How you can live in an intersection of who you are, of what you love to do and what you're good at. And so in university, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue. And so what I did in my career, and I still do to this day, I say, you know, there are two ways you come about your career. Either you have known since you were a kid that you wanted to be a dancer, an astronaut, and nothing has ever stopped you, or you've done this, which is, I think the best thing that I could do is I listen to the people around me to tell me what I'm good at. Sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees. I didn't know what I was always good at. So people would be like, you know where you're good at? You're good at speaking. You're not afraid to speak in front of people. I'm over here thinking, isn't that just what everyone does every day? They speak. How is that a job? How is that a career? You're really good at energy. You have a lot of energy. I'm like, doesn't everyone? They were like, no, I drink coffee for this energy. Fun fact, I do not drink coffee at all. I don't like the taste. No, you, we've lost you a lot You do of not people. drink coffee. <laughs> I don't. And I know I'm going to lose a lot of you right now. You're like, I loved Allie Love. Now I don't like her anymore. I don't like the taste. I don't like the smell. I don't mind it. It's not a preference, at least in this season of my life. I just never have. Your days must be like, you know, you're working late at the Nets. The next morning you're up, you're doing Peloton. And I see you in Peloton and you've got like this incredible positive energy that just must come from within. Assuming that's just part of who you are. Yeah. You know, you've heard this parable like, oh, well, if you find a job that you love, you never work a day in your life. Completely wrong. You work harder. 
when you find things that you enjoy doing, you end up working harder. If you're with someone or you are this type of person or you know someone that is like thoroughly enthralled with their work and they come home and they tell you exciting stories. Not every story is exciting, obviously. Like everyone needs to kiki and be petty at some point in life. But when they tell you stories, like exciting stories of their job and it's filled with that passion and energy, it's because they sincerely love what they do. I will say not every day is rainbow and sunshines and I'm waking up like, this is the best day ever. Ah, I'm not doing that. I can say that I do absolutely love my job and I love my jobs, which is also important because growing up, my mother was like, you have to be good at one thing. I would say like seven years ago, the world was really made up of people that were experts. You don't get invited on someone's show of any capacity unless you are an expert. And I remember thinking, well, I'm no expert in anything. I literally do so many things and I know where they intersect. I'm no expert. And we've kind of moved past and into space where, okay, you can be good at many things and you can create a career title. And that's where my curiosity led me. It's like, yes, I have a lot of energy, but this energy comes from this place of, I'm not trying to be the master of one trade. I know that there is a lot of room for you to be kind of like the Jack, the Jill of all trades and figure out where they intersect and make a viable career and find that joy in what you do. And that's what I continue to do. Even in my career now, as I look back at all the things I do, entering a host at the Brooklynettes, going into my 10th season, going into seven years at Peloton as an instructor, never was an instructor prior to being at Peloton, never was a sideline reporter, a host. I don't have a degree in journalism. I had no experience before being in the host of the Brooklynettes. I've been there 10 seasons. I don't have a degree in business. I don't even know what it really does take technically to build a business plan but I do have a business. I have a viable business. I too have built a brand for myself. I didn't go to school for marketing and branding, but I've built it for myself. So knowing that I have no fundamental experience, I know that there is a way to figure it out. And a lot of that is fueled by that passion and that energy, that desire and excitement to wake up in the morning and say, what's next? How can I make this work? How can I stay curious around this job? How can I do all these things and kind of go against status quo? <laughs> And certainly you've done that. You know, when you're in touch with your authentic self, really with that thing that gives you passion and purpose, it's incredible what you can do. So you were talking about New York. You got to New York. How did you get to the Nets? And how did you get some of these other things going once you got to New York? Yeah, so I came to New York my freshman year. And I remember calling my mother after being here for two months, saying that this is the worst place on earth. I want to come home. I was very depressed. I was having kind of like separation anxiety, although I grew up very independent. And while I was very independent and I knew leaving home and saying goodbye to my family came naturally, I started to feel a sense of weightiness living in New York. Everyone seemed to know what they were doing. A lot of my college colleagues, they lived in Jersey or in Pennsylvania, so they could go home on the weekend at any given time. I didn't. I didn't have money to fly back home at any given whim. There were moments I was in my dorm room alone. I didn't know anyone, especially in the very beginnings. It's all about making friends. And while I am a very social person, it still doesn't come that quickly, especially as you get acclimated to courses and schools and a new area of the city and things like that. And so for me, I had to kind of overcome this depression. And I remember having a conversation with my mother. And now that I say this, maybe I've had really great conversations with my mom and I don't give her enough credit. But I remember having a conversation and my mother told me, why don't you come home and go to school in North Florida? I had gotten a scholarship to Florida State. She was like, why don't you come, go to Florida State, we'll transfer you and we'll get you a car. That way you can come home every weekend if you wanted to. You have flexibility or options. And it was something that clicked inside of me when she said that. I told her, 
Don't ever tell me I can come home again. Don't ever give me that option. What I'm dealing with right now isn't trying to find a way out. It's trying to figure it out. And I said, if you tell me I can come home, that gives me a way out of this. That gives me a way to decide to escape and not figure it out. And I told her, I said, if I ever call you and tell you I want to come home out of sheer like fear, the answer from you should be no. Because if I do come home, I know myself. I'll feel like I failed. I feel like a city ran me away. People ran me away from something. And I don't want that feeling. I don't want to live with that. And so my mom and I had that agreement, unless it was an extreme in terms of mental safety, mental well-being, mental health, and or physical safety, physical health, that she would never offer me that. I knew in the back of my mind, I know to this day I can go home, but it wasn't an option in front of me. And so that freshman year had to get over that hump, right? I had to get over that fear, that discomfort. And once I got over it, which it did happen, I ended up falling in love with the rhythm of New York. I made friends, lifelong friends. I have friends to this day, my college roommates, who we still keep in touch to this day. We still see each other. We still celebrate milestones together. We still are advocates for each other. Through that, I ended up going through four years of university. I grew up in New York City. I grew up as an artist in New York City. I was able to become familiar with what New York has to offer. I was able to really pursue dance, to move my body, coupled with great education at Fordham University. And it kind of got me to this road where my senior year, I was very fortunate enough. I ended up getting a contract to Wilhelmina to become a model. Contracts where I did, I guess it was an internship in a sense, at two professional companies. So I got professional experience, professional performance. I was able to start making money, really good big bucks money in New York City to save up for that transition. And it solidified that I belonged in New York City, that I had spent that time well in pursuing arts, working hard, going to all classes. I did not miss classes. That was an agreement with my parents. They're like, you don't miss university. You go to all classes unless, again, you know, physically or mentally can't. But for the most part, I was every day in class. I built a great reputation and a great brand in terms of being available for performances, doing extra auditions, and really absorbing everything that the city had to offer. And that's how I spent my university. So Allie, just to go back for a second, you were at this point and so many people are at this point, right? Where something is hard, something is scary, something, you know, I, I, I don't know who said the quote that everything we want is on the other side of fear. I love that quote. You were confronting something, you chose to move forward, right? I mean, I think as a parent, I would have done almost probably what your mom would have done in some sense, which is, hey, you can come home. But what advice do you have for people who are in that situation, people who you know, might be facing a fear right now, but they know that they have to get through that fear or, you know, retreating from that fear might mean walking from their dream. What advice would you give to those people in that situation? Well, I don't think anything I can offer is super profound, but what I recognize two things. I was having this conversation with my husband yesterday, Andrew, is that sometimes when it doesn't work, it doesn't mean it's not working. I think many of us take signs of, maybe discomfort or negative feelings or a no getting on the wait list for a dream, you know, for you getting that no as a sign of, okay, this isn't working. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm going to pivot instead of just because it's not right now. Doesn't mean you don't need to stay in that position, stay in that discomfort, right? Get comfortable with being uncomfortable, common saying amongst probably all fitness instructors, especially at Peloton, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. and. I remember my mom also coupling with that growing up. She's like, if you're uncomfortable, take a beat, listen, 
you're learning something. It doesn't mean run. It doesn't mean change. It doesn't mean leave. And so I think for anyone who's dealing with that fear or that wanting of like, oh my God, I'm scared. What's next? I don't know what's next, or I don't know. I need to make a transition. Take a beat just because it's not working. Doesn't mean it's not going to work, you know? And so it's like, take a beat, stay where you are, be steadfast, really listen to yourself. What's making you uncomfortable in this situation? What are you most afraid of? What could happen? I think asking yourself those questions are really important. And that's what I did in many of those situations. I knew I wanted to become a dancer. I knew I wanted to make it on my own. I knew that there were possibilities out in the world. And if I went home, they became less available. So I'm not trying to take the road that's comfortable, but also really laborious. I'm trying to take the road that's uncomfortable and exciting. And so that's what I had to choose. It's like, ask yourself, are you willing to take the road that's uncomfortable and exciting and very much aligned with what you want or what you desire instead of the comfortable road that could take a lot longer, a lot more resources, and it could be a lot less entertaining. You know, you have a less of a story to share, a legacy to build. You're not building legacy if everything's comfortable. On the other side of that, I do say for those folks dealing with fear, I think currently in this situation, I too am dealing with fear of the next step. It doesn't go away. Now that we have 6.9, almost 7 million members on our platform and not everyone's riding with me and not everyone likes me and not everyone's following me, doesn't mean I'm a terrible person. Doesn't mean I should stop. Doesn't mean I know nothing. Doesn't mean I shouldn't continue to strive for my goals. It can come in different capacities. It doesn't stop coming. And I think what I can say, coupled with that, like just take a beat. If you are experiencing that, if you're experiencing that friction, I do think it's an indicator that you're on the right path, that you are asking yourself the right questions. Because like you said, the things you want are on the other side of fear. So how bad are you willing to work for it? And that's what I am reconciling internally daily. It's like, how bad do I want it? I do think I deserve it. I do think there's a space for me there. I do think I'm good at what I have to offer at building community of building these things. Don't back down. It's a great way to look at it and don't back down. And I keep thinking about what you said about even being nine years old and having kind of this epiphany about life, you know, and this is the life we've got right now. And, you know, I've heard people say it's not a dress rehearsal. So why not go for it? Sometimes we define failure in our mind as something really that it's not. We'll say failure is I went for it and it didn't work. Well, how about you went for it, but you learned something and you keep moving forward and eventually you get there or you get something else. So much of it is how we look at it and how we think about it. Yeah. And you're not alone. Everyone's going through it. Whether it's a CEO sitting at the head of the table, somebody applying for the job at the same company, somebody who has no job, somebody who's transitioning back into the job pool, someone who's trying to start a family, like everyone's going through something. You are not alone. And I think that that's something that I remind myself often. I have my own story. I have my own challenges, but Joe has his, like, you're not just over there living hunky dory. And if you are, you'd be like the most well-known person because you would have told us what the secrets are. There are no secrets. We all are trying to figure it out. That's true. We are all in it together. I mean, everyone's in this experience of humanity, right? Just kind of going yeah. through it together. Let me ask you a little bit about Dale Carnegie, because yeah. I, we're talking about mindset right now. And interesting, the way that we've come to know each other was one of our Dale Carnegie team members was in one of your classes and actually went through the class. You were reading how to stop worrying and start living. Tell us about how you came to Dale Carnegie and what impact Dale Carnegie has had on how you think. Absolutely. That's why being on this podcast is so surreal to me. I'm going to take you back a little bit. Graduate college, 
started doing more commercial dance. I danced for the New York Knicks, danced for Beyonce, Pitbull, started doing a little bit of a touring situation. And then there became a pivot in my career. And, and I'm modeling with Wilhelmina. I'm working with like Under Armour at the time. Now I'm an Adidas athlete, but like doing all this fitness modeling, really saving up money for myself, able to provide for myself. And then there came a moment, a shift in my career shortly thereafter, maybe a year after graduation, there was a shift in myself. I started to become afraid. And the reason I was becoming afraid is because I didn't know what was next. I knew I wanted to change. I didn't want to be a Nick City dancer forever. I didn't want to dance for Beyonce and Pitbull. While that is very glamorous and kudos to the people that do it. I knew that there was something else that I was meant to do. And I didn't know what it was. I couldn't put my finger on it. My husband was my boyfriend at the time. He's really good at advice. And so Andrew was like, why don't you start reading? I love reading a lot. So he was like, why don't you get back to just reading? Start figuring out the answers. This is nothing news under the sun. So why don't you figure out who's doing what you want to do or something similar in reading? Picked up the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie, you know, even though different, you have Carnegie Hall is something that was very prestige. So when I saw Dale Carnegie, I was like, mm, this is probably prestige too, the name. I had no idea. So I read the book. And it really changed my entire life. And the reason for that, it was talking about types of people, right? Like what type of person are you? And it would tell these stories. And I think it gave me a sense of what I would now call figuring out my North Star, figuring out who I was, right? Having a template. And I think this is why people fall in love with astrology and fall in love with the meaning of their names. And the reason for that is like, you get a foundation of what does your sign mean? Are you like that? And if you're like that, it makes you feel comfortable with who you are. It gives you confidence on how you act, react and respond. And so I think Dale Carnegie provided me that. I know Dale Carnegie, like that specific book, How to Win Friends and Influence People really provided me kind of like that structure of like, okay, what type of person am I? I think it really did help me frame up and establish like, who do I wanna be? Who do people see me as? And who would people say I am? Three questions that I started to live by. I took three months off of work and I started writing out who I was and I started reading and I was reading. I wanted to read about Oprah. She's a host. I knew I wanted to host, you know, Ryan Seacrest, VJ, like turned host, all these things. Padma Lashmi, a model. I was a model. She became a host, but more so for cooking, like turned into like kind of chef connoisseur host. So reading all these autobiographies, biographies, I started reading all these quote unquote self-help books. So that was a book that I recommended and little did I know at the time, very well-known book by many people, very well-read and acknowledged book by many folks. Fast forward to this year. I was in London for two months. I'm hosting a Netflix show. So depending on when you listen to this podcast, either the show has came out or it will come out. It's a dance competition show where one contestant wins $100,000. The contestants are the choreographers. There are 100 dancers. So I spent two months traveling back and forth to London because I would teach classes in New York because I had to teach as my full-time job. And then I would film in between coming back for one or two classes the rest of the week in London, in the UK. And I felt like my level of stress was at an all-time high. And I was really feeling, again, fear, which I kind of alluded to earlier, that same fear of like, there's something next. I love what I'm doing. I'm not gonna give up what I'm doing, but things need to change. And so I need to look internally. And so I was like, what does Dale have to say? You know, I'm, he's written a lot, he's quoted a lot. He helped me a lot. And I found how to stop worrying and start living. I will say at this time in my life, I don't pick up hard copies anymore. I think sitting down to read is a luxury. I can't technically afford as much. So I audible a lot of books. And so as I was getting ready every morning for the dance show to go on set, I started listening to this. I often bring my experiences, things that I've read, statistics that I've learned to class, right? We all are in that same 
situation. And it was like, you can't sell sawdust, like in this concept of stress. And I'm like, people are trying to sell sawdust. I think for me, it shifted. It pivoted a lot of things around stress for me. And I think it was coming from a trusted source, obviously Dale Carnegie and whoever is the voice of this Dale Carnegie on the audible to me, that's how Dale would sound. So this was like Dale Carnegie speaking to me. And so it shifted a lot of perspective. And I will say the other one that I've often referenced in class, and it was because I've never heard this before. And it comes to what I'm currently dealing with is that no one is kicking a dead dog. I'm like, whoa, that is a very harsh analogy, but it's true. No one kicks a dead dog. It's kind of like this concept of if you're not worth talking about, nobody's talking about you when they have something to say, whether it's good or bad, or, you know, you may be indifferent to what they have to say. If they're talking about you, it's because you are doing things that are creating change. Whether you think in a positive, it could be in a negative, whatever. It is creating some type of change. It is creating a ripple effect that now you become topic of conversation. And I think it was a reminder for me as I am a public figure that sometimes people will absolutely adore my classes. And then there are people like she talks too much, or she doesn't play the music that I like, or they prefer a different instructor. And what I recognize, while all those things are very normal and good for the environment, it's just a reminder for me of like, I'm special in my own way and no one's kicking a dead dog because they say, and may write a comment in another platform that I don't love this class or I don't love, you know, that Ali does this. It doesn't mean that they don't love me. It doesn't mean that people don't love me. It doesn't mean that my self-worth is being questioned. It means that I'm on a platform that is creating conversation. I'm creating content that's creating conversation that's thought provoking. And it is up to the thinker and the person who is having this dialogue to decide what and how they want to respond. And that is all I'm trying to do in life. And so it shifted my perspective and continues. I think about it often, to be honest, it shifted my perspective on how I receive this information or how, if I'm privy to these types of comments or this type of rhetoric, how I can digest it and process it without it shaking my entire core at what I will say in the season of my life is a very vulnerable season. Well, it's got to be hard because you're out there, you're visible and public yeah. figures are people who, you know, can have people saying wonderful things. You can have people trolling you, all kinds of horrible things out there. But what you're saying is really true. And it's part of the growth, I think, of just kind of becoming more comfortable with who we are and having that thicker skin because, not everyone's going to love us. Some people, no matter what we do, someone's going to have something negative to say. But then again, if they're saying something negative, it's like, you know, no one kicks a dead dog, right? I mean, it's like, hey, you're doing something, you're out there, you're visible, you're making something happen. But dealing with that can be hard emotionally. It sounds like that has helped you in the season of life that you're in and just kind of work through those kinds of things. And I would expect it will really help, especially kind of as you continue to move forward. Yeah. And I think, Again, I chose this public life. So I know that there are consequences and any decisions that you make, there's upside and there's downside. Very practical human being. I do know that it doesn't necessarily soften the experience, especially on the flip side, when it's not as positive, it doesn't soften the experience of what a human deals with, no matter how visible they are. It still hurts, right? Sticks and stones break your bones, but words can also hurt you. Like, no, that this is true. They do hurt you. They can break you down. And I am very grateful that while this is a part of the life I've chosen, majority, I would say at least 97% of it is positive. 
I know why I do the jobs that I do. I say my career is at the intersection of the three C's, right? Camera work, community, and conversation. I know what a conversation can do to you. A very a positive conversation, nine years old, having that conversation with my mom of her telling me I need to make a decision about my life to fight or let go. I know what conversation can beget. It changes people. It's the catalyst of change. Community is this idea of, you never feel alone. That's why I want to be on Peloton. That's why I'm grateful for my job. I'm grateful that I get to show up. That's why I created Love Squad so we can talk about women empowerment so I can bring people together at a low to no cost. Mm -hmm. And then on camera, it's not necessarily just those that are like me, right? Those people that live in New York City, it straddles the globe that everyone has access, right? And that's why those three C's are the center of me being the, all the things that I am. In arena host for the Brooklynettes, Peloton instructor, CEO and founder of Love Squad, right? All those things intersect with those three C's. And so I will say I'm very grateful. And that's why I do try my best to take that positive approach. I am grateful for what I'm doing. I shared something in my feel good ride this last week. It's like, it's a blessing to fight for big things. The fact that I have access to big things, that's incredible. The fact that my fear is a fear of a big thing happening, like a big, good thing, a big, great thing, a big next thing. That's incredible. My options are big. That's what you work so hard for. And so there is a fear, you know, it is a blessing to have to work really hard or fight or deal with the negative comments or the words that can really affect you. I go back to Billie Jean King. Pressure is a privilege. I am grateful for it, but it is also that privilege. And so I know what I signed up for. I don't want to sound like, woe is me. I handle it. It hurts. It is a part of being human. It's a part of my career. It's a part of me showing up. You said authentic, but showing up as myself and sharing like, I too am dealing with some stuff. <laughs> I think your authenticity is something that is really very obvious. And I've kind of come to know you through taking your classes in Peloton. By the way, it is my Peloton story. I'll tell you for a long time, people had talked about Peloton. I've always been a runner, never really cared for biking. I was like, oh gosh, I really want to bike. But everyone I know who had a Peloton was like, I love this. I love this. I love this. So I finally got one. And Joe Gannon, who was the one who takes your classes all the time, said, oh, you got to take Allie's classes. It's amazing to me. Part of why I enjoy your classes, and I think why so many people enjoy your classes, there is this authentic positive energy that you're putting out there. So, you know, when you're talking about the three C's, I can't help but think one of the other C's is contribution. There's an impact that you're having. You may not see even the people who are on the other side of that screen. Many times I'm on that bike and I'm thinking to myself, gosh, I'm going to get a personal best here. You're just kind of keeping it going, keeping it going. That's an opportunity we all have to really put that positive energy out to other people so clearly you're doing that. And I just want to give you some affirmation around that because sometimes there's the positives and sometimes you hear the negatives, but you got a whole community of people out there who really enjoy uh, riding with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I received that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So Love Squad is something, I mean, we go to kind of this community that you've created. What is Love Squad and what led you to create it? And what do you hope to achieve through it? Yeah, so it did also start in university where... I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I was dancing. I knew there was more out there in life. And I was really frustrated. I always say it was created out of sheer lack of resources and frustration. I didn't have money to go to networking events in New York City to be you know, in the in crowd. And I didn't know where to start. And so what I did was I created Love Squad. Love is my real last name. And I put together an event. I asked for free space. I was like searching for free space. I brought people together. And basically, I tapped a friend who had built her career. She was doing really well for herself to come in and I would moderate a conversation. She would give a workout and I'd moderate a conversation and I had free food. Again, I reached out and was like trying to find free food, free goodies. 
And I created this whole event with $0 and I opened up the event, right? It was free. Like I said, access to information is expensive. And so it sold out, quote unquote, sold out. Like all spots were taken within 15 seconds with a 75 person wait list. And to me, I was like, wow, you know, at the time I had 3000 followers on Instagram. Not everyone lived in New York. 3000 is a lot. It's not a lot these days, I feel like, but maybe it was a lot back then. And so for people to overwhelmingly say yes to this event and then come out, the moment I knew that Love Squad was a thing after we were talking about branding, how to build your brand, how to make those next steps, how to ask the right questions. It was because at the end I had the space till 830 and I was just like, Ooh, you all need to get out of here because this is free. But the fact that people wanted to stay around and they were exchanging information and connecting and really having deep conversations around where they were in their career, it really did inspire me to continue. And so right now it's a small company. I'm literally relaunching 2.0, hiring a full-time business manager in search of that. Cause I want someone to run it in tandem with me running my own business, like my own entrepreneurial business that I have. And so having that where we can do events at least five times a year before the pandemic, we did an event once a month and they were in person in New York city. We partnered with a lot of spaces, a lot of women-owned businesses, and we'd come out and I'd moderate conversations or give keynotes around how to build your brand, how to pivot, how to save money. And these are all things that I've learned. And I would bring in my network of friends who I had access and who would donate their time, who were CEOs or entrepreneurs. And I would sit down and have a conversation and we'd open up the room to ask questions. Because what we do know is like to learn this stuff, university costs a lot of money, courses cost a lot of money. The commitment of time to be steadfast in a course or to tune in on social takes a lot of time. And sometimes when you have to choose between work, sleep, and this extracurricular activity, you choose work and sleep. And so what we did was we made it accessible and we built a community and I'm very grateful for that community. And so what's next is that we're rebuilding, we're rebranding. So we've taken a beat. I'm looking to hire a little bit more of the team and continue these events in 2023 a little bit more consistently now that we are in a world that is less virtual. I think we're all a little burnt out around virtual events. No offense, I'm a little burnt out and I want to get back to that in person and really that experience of people connecting with each other. That to me is quite beautiful. That cultivation of community is really beautiful to me. And if people want to become connected to the Love Squad community, how do they do that? Yeah, Love Squad Instagram, the 2.0 rollout in 2023, and then our website, lovesquad.com. Okay, well, sounds good. So, Allie, how do you define leadership? What does leadership mean to you? Yeah, when I think of leadership, I think of someone who leads from the inside. There is a parable that I'm really going to butcher right now. It's like this story of the best leader doesn't necessarily get to the destination and say, I got us here. The best leader, amongst a group of people that arrive at a destination and the people look around and say, wow, we made it. And I think that to me is a reflection of a good leader. If you can look at your team and your team looks at each other and they say, we made it. That to me says that you were able to manage, right? Leaders are able to bring out the best in people. You find out what people are good at. You let them do what they're good at, contribute to the team. You match those pieces of a whole together. You know what's needed to get to a certain destination or to get to completion. You figure out who's the best in each of those areas. Let them contribute their best, bring out the best for them. Let them do what they do well. And that entire team moves to that final destination, to that place, to that area of completion, of success. And everyone looks around and say, we've all added a lot and we made it. And I think that that's what a great leader does. They lead from the inside. They're not someone who says, here are my ideas, do what I say, and then get it done. And I think that there is this nuance, especially now in our current state of life, where 
a leader needs to be someone who's on the credits. They need to be first on the credits. They need to be first to said, I knew it first. It's this concept of like visibility. We're so focused on like being visible. And I remind myself often is like, always what's visible is not what's valuable. Just because you got to a destination or you led a team to completion once, it doesn't mean you built relationships where you can replicate that. That means you are a winner, not a champion. A champion is someone who could be effective and get to the destination and get to the W every single time. And most people that can do that is a person of the people, right? Who inspire, influence, ignite, excite those folks to do what they do really well and to do it together. And then they move. And you can replicate that multiple times and people will follow you anywhere. That's a great leader. If you're wondering if you're a great leader, ask yourself this question. If I leave this position, this job, this area, will people follow me? And not that you need to use that as leverage. I mean, you could, but that is an indicator. If you left this company, this position, would anyone on your team, not just out of loyalty, but understanding that you know how to get the job done, you know how to lead, you know how to believe in people, you know how to create community, will they follow you? And it doesn't have to be everyone, but if there are like good three people that will follow you, not just blindly, but knowing that you know how to get to the destination, it's incredible. If the answer is no, that means that's okay. It's just some work to do. And I'm working on that right now. It's like, how can I continue to be a good leader, lead from the inside, continue to be one of the people, bring out what people do well, let them do what they do well, put the pieces together. And then when we all look around, we say, wow, we made it. And that's really what it is. It's working together to get to that destination together. I mean, so many times people think that leadership is just like you'd kind of said, it's like, command and control, do this. And, and that's not what it is at all. I mean, it's not yeah. arrogance. It needs to be humble. It needs to really bring out the best in other people and to achieve things that they wouldn't be able to achieve together. It seems like that's really what people want is let's do these incredible things. Let's do it together. Allie, you know, you're someone who's always thinking ahead. What are the things that really kind of excite you for the future? So I'm working on a podcast now with the Brooklyn Nets. It's called Courtside Conversation. It's something I pitched three years ago that they picked up. It's on iHeartRadio, anywhere you can listen to a podcast. We test it out for about six episodes just to gather our bearings and kind of get my footing as a podcast host. You know, it's different than just being a regular host. And so now we're rolling out during the season podcast. So Courtside Conversation, where we'll talk about it's framed up in four quarters. It's getting to know a lot of folks that are around the game of basketball, a lot of tastemakers, athletes, and artists. And so I'm excited about that. That's something that I'm looking to continue to invest in as we roll it out. And then in the near future, I mean, I've said this before, everybody wants to be an author. Everyone's writing books. I know so many friends, kudos to them that have written books or are writing books or that have books coming out next year. I think what I'd like to do is to be honest, if I could write a book, like Dale Carnegie, really like how to win friends and influence people. Like that to me is the pinnacle is like, how can I give more than I take? Right. Is something I often ask myself. And in that way, it's like that lives on is information that can transcend time information that's accessible to all people, not just right now, not just me telling my story. I really do appreciate you giving me the space to share my story. And while I think individual stories are important and powerful and antidotal, I do think that there is something around creating content written content, as well as visual content that stands the test of time. As I think about it, I don't know what that looks like, but I'm optimistic that it's in me and I don't know when it will come out. I don't know when it will happen. But when I think of the future, that's what I think is in my future is that I create a piece of content that literally, you know, it's being consumed 100, 300 years from now that is still applicable to human, the elements of who we are and not just what we are at the time. 
Yeah, it's pretty incredible to think about the ability to do that. I mean, just to go back even to How to Win Friends, the fact that that's been a best-selling book for over 85 years and millions and millions of people who it's impacted. And I've traveled all over the world and people will talk like you have and say, oh my gosh, this book really impacted me. So you know, you're someone who wants to contribute and have impact. Certainly a book would be a phenomenal way to do that. So I can't wait to see what the Alley Love book is. By the way, I have a book coming out in January with my co-author, Michael Crom, and you are in it. We've got a great story of yours in there. So for anyone who's thinking about picking up that book, we can read about Alley Love in uh, Take Command. That was a big moment for me. So thank you. Well, it's a great story and it's a great part of you that you shared with our readers. I'm excited to have other people experience that as well. Allie, any closing pieces of advice or thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I think just similarly to where I am in my space, I just want to share to anyone who is listening. If you haven't figured out the answer, if you feel like you are answerless or you don't have what you think you should have in this moment, just know that it's not lost on you to figure it out in a sense. I tend to go back to old school, put pen and paper, write down what you want, even if it's scary. I know saying like, I want to be an international best-selling author, but I don't have a book is quite audacious of me, but it's not impossible. And so I think putting pen to paper to write down and remind you of what you want and who you are, don't forget the beauty in that. It is something quite special, especially in times, like I said, if you're in this space where it's a little uncertain. You're a little nervous, a little fearful, like what's next and how can I continue to expand? Put some pen to paper and don't forget to remind yourself of who you are that way. Great advice. Great advice. Be bold and write it down, make it happen. And Allie, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. Thank you for those that are listening. Thank you for your time. In today's Thought Leadership Spotlight segment, our guests will talk about how you can push yourself forward by applying one of the Dale Carnegie principles and showing more courage than you think you possess. Like Allie Love, our guest will demonstrate how one can succeed even when being uncomfortable and facing adversity. Please welcome President and Leader of Dale Carnegie, Missouri, Elizabeth Haberberger. I was 31 years old on the starting platform of my very first ninja competition. I was about 15 years older than every other competitor, and I was petrified. I was nervous and anxious. The time started, I completed the first obstacle, and on the second obstacle, I fell. Now, you get to continue until your time is done, so I went ahead and I fell again. And then I slipped off of an obstacle, and by the time my run was over, I was embarrassed. It was uncomfortable. I was anxious. And all I wanted to do was get out of there until a teenager came over, gave me a high five and said, great job, Liz. And it was in that moment that I remembered, I love Ninja. I love the feeling of getting to compete. And I knew I could do more and better than what I just did. So instead of quitting, instead of giving up, I continued. I continued to train, I continued to compete, and slowly but surely, I got better. Just like Allie said, it's in those times when we're uncomfortable that we grow the most. If it's uncomfortable and exciting, push yourself to continue. Dale Carnegie says, most of us have far more courage than we ever dreamed we possessed. 
whatever it is, it's making you uncomfortable right now. Push through. You can achieve far more than you thought you could. Join us and order a copy of Take Command in hardcover, ebook, or audiobook format at your favorite bookseller or at takecommandbook.io. Also, you can visit takecommand.com for more information about the book and additional resources. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.